Well, I am uh, Pastor A.T. Hargrave. I am part of the teaching team and the director of the Destiny Christian Leadership Institute. Um, I uh, have the honor of preaching this morning. Pastor Lawrence and Tracy and family are still out on a much-needed uh, vacation. They have a couple days left. Um, aren't you thankful for them, Pastor Lawrence and Tracy? Yeah. They're not here, but we can celebrate them anyway, right? I just hope if he's playing golf, he plays horribly this morning. That's what I hope. Glory to God. No. Uh, if you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them and go to Luke chapter 5. We're going to be reading a little small passage of scripture. You'll notice the tables out in odd little sections. We are uh, in, a, in a season of uh, talking about come to the table. Pastor Chris kind of uh, initiated that last week, and uh, we're going to continue to, to kind of think about what the table looks like. And this morning, I want to talk to you about the table being a place of healing. The table being a place of healing but not just that, we can, not a place that we can simply go to be healed, but a place that we can help prepare so others might come and be healed. So uh, we want to uh, just dive right in. We're going to be at Luke chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 27 through 32. It says, after this, he, being Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that it would, um, by your spirit, you would take your word and massage it in past our intellect, past our um, enculturation, and down into our souls, deep unto deep, where you will change us. Lord, I can't do that. I'm not smart enough or wise enough, or there's no clever way of presentation that will do that. We need your spirit to come. Lord, I just want to take a moment, and I want to just pray for our children. Holy Spirit, move among them this morning. I pray that you would give them a heart to know you, and to walk in your ways. You would draw them to salvation, that they would see your beauty and desire to gaze upon it all the days of their life. That you bless those who are serving them today and ministering to them today. And here, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. And I'm going to need your help for that. But I thank you that you are faithful. And we pray in Jesus' name, our only hope. Amen. In this story, there's really three main characters, right? You have Jesus, you have Levi, and you have the Pharisees. Now, oftentimes when we read the scriptures, it's difficult to kind of get in there and feel some of what they might be feeling. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about what why a tax collector got such a bad rap. Uh, you may be thinking, we don't need a lot of help with that. <laughs> we know why tax collectors get bad raps. <laughs> Anybody who worked for the IRS, I apologize uh, in advance. But in um, the, the biblical time, especially in what's considered Second Temple Judaism, that's a time period, um, Rome, uh, Israel is occupied by Rome. Rome has come in a foreign 
country has come in and basically devastated them. Um, and the Romans were not exactly nice all the time. They, they come in, they take what they want, they can pull things from your house, they um, sexually assault anybody they want to. They pretty much just rampage, put into submission, and then they rule. And then after they start ruling, they say, well, now you guys can do a little bit of what you want to do, but you know, we're, we're in charge here. And part of the Roman occupation was they taxed their, the people. They would actually tax them so bad, eventually, they'd say, you get to keep your land, for example, farmers, you get to keep your land. But then they would tax them so high they couldn't pay it, then they'd come and take their land because they didn't pay their taxes. And that's how they would acquire the land that, they'd over, that they had just come to occupy or just conquered. Now imagine that's happening, and then one of your own begins to go around for Rome and collect that money. See, it wasn't just that they were tax collectors. It wasn't just they took a little off the top. It was they're representing something that has um, wrecked and brought devastation to your life. They were hated. I mean, there were cries to burn tax collectors alive. They did not like them. So when Jesus looks at one and says, follow me, when Jesus goes to uh, Levi's house, when he's dining with him at the table, I don't know how to put that into a perspective for you, that you would be able to feel some of the weight of it. But it's as if he's sitting down at a known pedophile's house saying, dine with me, follow me. It's as if, in our culture, I don't know, uh, for the conservative uh, American, taking somebody who is full-on LGBTQ agenda, and he goes to their house and says, sit down and follow me. For uh, uh, OU fans, it's like sitting down with a Texas fan, you know? It's just, (laughs) I'm just joking. Somebody's going to say, he just compared Texas fans to, I didn't, sorry. I was just, uh, that's what happens when you don't have notes and you go off the cuff. Um, This is, quite inappropriate. So when we get to the Pharisee's question, which is really the whole point of these five little verses, isn't it? The Pharisee's question actually may be, in my opinion, closer to what you and I as Christians in the Bible Belt might be asking of Jesus. The Pharisees tend to get a bad rap. Everybody's like, well, you know, everything's the Pharisee's fault. But look, The Pharisees are trying their best. They're known to be zealous for God. They're trying their best to follow the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And the problem with that is, is they can't follow it to the letter because Rome has outlawed some of the things. So they kind of emerge as these, there's this religious group that's trying to be faithful, but in a a context where they, it's illegal to do some of the things they would do to be faithful. So they kind of represent this compromised view of being faithful. So don't take so many steps on the Sabbath. Well, that's actually not in the Torah, the first five books, but they had to make some extra laws because there's some things that in the Torah they should be doing that they couldn't do because it was outlawed. Wash your hands, things like that. The tra- Jesus would call them tra- these traditions of men. So you have these two people. You have this zealot. And listen, I, I don't know how to say this well. So the, in my opinion, the pharisaical condition is really just the human condition on religion. It's constantly comparing, it's wanting to be good, it's wanting to be right, it's wanting to be uh, the best, it's wanting to be above. And look, we, we have to be careful because we all can wind up an accidental Pharisee. You know, nobody intends to do it, right? 
But it's like eating at Denny's. <laughs> Nobody intends to do it. You just kind of wind up there at 2 o'clock in the morning trying to figure out what happened. <laughs> I think sometimes if we're not careful, we'll wind up as Pharisees and we don't even realize it. So I want to talk a little bit about how uh, the progressive, these five little verses, and how important I think it is for us in this season. First, we have to not, we can't go around it. I don't want to go around it. I want to just talk about it right up front. That the big takeaway of this little five verses is that Jesus has come to draw Levi to repentance. Repentance is the in here one of the goals for Jesus. He makes it really clear. Now we don't like repentance. It feels like a like a negative word, right? If I was to say, hey, you need to repent, you're gonna be like, well, I do. You know, you get defensive all of a sudden. But repentance is actually a good thing. Uh, re repent. Um, in Greek, it's the word metanoi, and uh, meta being above, like, a, like metaphysics, being above or beyond or after. And um, noia meaning um, mind or to think, like a paranoia, noia being mind. So metanoia, being repent, meaning to think uh, above or after or to think again or to have another thought or to think a higher thought or to think a thought that's beyond. And sometimes it even can mean to go beyond reason, and that's why people would say a lot of times repentance has more to do with the heart than the head. That there's something else going on besides just thinking. But it does involve our thinking. Repent. Jesus has come to draw to repentance. And so I just want to give you some things about repentance that we need to think about. Uh, one is this. Repentance is necessary. And repentance is necessary because of sin. Repentance is necessary because of sin. Now listen, before you hear that and go, what did I do wrong? And he's going to say, yes, there's things we do wrong. But sin, I'm just talking about sin right now in general. Repentance is not a bad word. It's actually a good thing because the world is not as it should be. And you and I are not as we were intended to be. And if we're really honest about that, we can see it. And that's really good news, though, in a way, that, that this is not as it should be. Because can you imagine if this was all that there was, if this was all that things should be like? Anybody else got some problems? Maybe have some questions? One of my favorite writers, G.K. Chesterton, was an um, atheist who later became a Christian and later then became an apologist. He was a fantastic writer. He wrote prolifically about everything, pretty much. Uh, C.S. Lewis and J.L. Tolkien, Tolkien both said they wouldn't be Christians if it wasn't for G.K. Chesterton. And one of the things he writes in his own book, Orthodoxy, which he's, out, he's tracing out how he became a Christian, he, this is what he says. The modern philosopher had told me again and again that I was in the right place, that this world is all there is, and I should enjoy it and make the most of it. But that only made me feel more depressed, even though I acquiesced to it. But then I heard Christianity, and it told me I was in the wrong place, and how my soul sang for joy like a bird in the spring. By knowledge that that found out that illuminated the forgotten chambers and the dark places of my soul, I knew now for the first time why I felt homesick at home. The, it's good news that we need to repent because it's good news the world is not as it should be because if this was all there was, we're in trouble. It's good to acknowledge that this is not it. And listen, there's, a, there's hundreds and thousands and millions of people living life as if this is all there is and they just have to suck every marrow of pleasure out of this life and avoid any pain they can and somehow think that's gonna be fulfilling and satisfying. But when you realize that you were created and intended for more, we can approach life a bit differently. Repentance in, the light, in light of Christ is exactly what the world needs. Like I, we talked about just earlier, what would it look like if heaven broke out? 
Is that not what the world actually longs for? Heaven to break out. So I just want to ask you as Christians to maybe challenge a little bit of the tendency that we could be accidental Pharisees. Why are we so shocked when the world acts like they're sinners? Why is it like, I can't believe them? <laughs> like, the basis of our faith is like, you don't get in unless you can admit you have, you've blown it, you're a sinner, there's nothing you can do to make this right. You have to cling to the work of Jesus Christ. That's how you get in to Christianity. That's how you become a part of the people of God. And then from inside, we look out at those who haven't repented yet, and we go, I can't believe they're sinners. Like, are you shocked your neighbor's a sinner? I, I meet parents that are shocked their kids are. And it's just like, I got news for you. You know, like, well, not my baby. Yeah, your baby, right? <laughs> Listen, Christians, this is where Christianity is different than Mormonism. It's different than Buddhism. Or, uh, sorry, it's different than uh, uh, Islam. We do not give birth to Christians. We give birth to pagans who need to repent and believe to be saved. In other words, God could make sure every Christian in one generation could, be, uh, could not have a single child. And we would believe the church would grow because it doesn't grow by procreation. It grows by us sharing the gospel and God bringing people to believe and repent. That's good news. Right? So I just joke with parents, but, you know, figure out how to handle a little sinner because you, you have some. And don't be shocked by it. <laughs> I realized like a third time my son lied to me at like four. I got to have a plan on what I'm going to do when he lies. <laughs> Why am I shocked all the time? But this is what I want you to see fundamentally. Jesus is for Levi's repentance because Jesus is for Levi. Jesus desires that Levi would experience life as God intended it, that he would experience the fullness of life that God wants, and therefore he is after Levi's repentance because he is for Levi's joy. So repentance is necessary because of sin. But the other thing about repentance you need to know is repentance is also a healing. It is a form of healing. That's Jesus phrases it here. I've not come, it's not, the, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. In other words, we need a healing. We need to repent and be healed, not just because we're bad, but also because we're broken. We need to repent and be healed, not just because we're flawed, but because we're wounded. We need to repent and be healed, not because we're just wrong, but because we are sick. Look, years ago, um, years ago, I, I remember one day, I, I had this rash breakout on my side. It just came, and it came like that. It came in whelps. It came aggressive. It came out of nowhere. It wasn't like a little one here, a little one there. It just like, boom, flared up. And I'm like sitting there scratching with a fork thinking, what in the world's going on? That's how bad it was. Like, I wanted to just rip my skin off. Then about an hour, it just completely went away. A couple hours later, showed up on my leg. Huge blister. I'm all of a sudden, bam, there it was. I'm scratching again going, oh, no. You know, this must be detergent. So I, you know, cleaned everything again with detergent that wasn't, you know. But it happened about two or three days. I was miserable. You know what's funny is that you start Googling it, right? <laughs> And not always the best ideas. You Google like these rashes that come and go, and then you're like, well, you know, one of the first things that came up, this is due to anxiety. And it's like, oh no, now I'm anxious. I might be anxious, right? This is gonna be worse. What if I can't stop the rashes? Now I'm more anxious. So I call my mom. My mom is a, a nurse practitioner. She's a, a doctor in that sense. And I said, Mom, here's the deal. This is what's going on. And I 
check the detergent, it's not that. But it keeps coming and going away, and then coming and then going away. So she walked through a couple things, asked a couple questions, and then she said, have you had any, tried any new medication? I said, no, I haven't had any new medication, but I've had the same medication I usually take. I got it at a different pharmacy, and it looked different. The color of the pill was different on the rest. She said, is that medicine time-released? And I said, yeah. She said, you're allergic to it, and every time it's releasing, you're breaking out. And she was absolutely correct. Now, this is what, or I bring this up. Repentance is a lot like that. We have issues and pains and things in our life we don't understand. I called my mom, listen to this, central to repentance is someone making a judgment about our behavior. But a judgment that's not punitive, not meant to punish, a judgment that's meant to heal. I called my mom and mom, I need you to make a judgment about my rash. Make it quick, right? I need you to make a judgment. Well, I don't know why we think judgment's always a bad thing, right? The psalm says, arise, O Lord, and judge the earth that the oppressed may go free. See, I need her to make a judgment about my rash, and then she makes a judgment about my rash, and then guess what? I obey her judgment about my rash because I believe she knows what she's talking about. And when I obey with judgment she's made about my rash, guess what happens? I don't have any more rash. Now, guess what? I could have said, Mother, let me just rephrase it. I don't not worry about could have said. Listen, it doesn't matter how accepting of me my mother was. I still got a rash. doesn't matter how kind she is. It doesn't matter if she said, Son, I love you, no matter how long you have that rash. You can have that rash till you're 80, and I will still love you. And I'll be like, Thank you, Mother. And, you know, like, I'm not calling because I need your love. I'm calling because I need your healing. Listen, we can preach that Jesus accepts people all day long, but they still live with rashes. There's a point where we say, listen, he does love you. He loves you so much he wants to heal you. Repentance has to do with healing as God begins to put things back to right again. Repentance is restorative. It's not punitive. In other words, repentance seeks to restore and not destroy. That's why repentance is refreshing. If you need and your spiritual life is dry, you may ask the question, what might some good repenting look like? I don't just mean beating yourself up and trying to make yourself feel guilty. I mean asking a fundamental question. Lord Jesus, what do I need to change the way I think about in order to think about it the way you do? What do I need to change the way I think about in order to think about it the way you do? But not only is repentance necessary because of sin, not only is repentance healing, Repentance is also a journey. Repentance is a process and not an event. Yes, there may be a moment where, there's an aha moment where we can repent. But listen, you don't just repent once and be like, oh, woo, I'm done, I got that over with. You know, the very first of the 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed to the door of Wittenberg, the very first one of the 95 theses was this, repentance is all of life. He was challenging the church, the Catholic church, if you have to come in here to repent, you gotta do this. He said, no, all of life is learning how to change the way you think, to think the way God thinks. And that's the way Jesus said. Jesus didn't just say, hey, repent because you guys are all bad, wicked, and horrible. He actually didn't say, didn't really talk much about repenting from. That would be later on Hebrews. He talked about repenting unto. Repent, why Jesus? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for an option has become available to you that previously wasn't. And you were making that choice on a particular way you think, but change the way you think because now the kingdom of heaven has now been made available. It's at hand. It's within reach. Change the way you think because in Christ, the kingdom of God is at hand. 
It's repentance for. It's a journey, though. It's a process. And the process, we don't like the word sometimes, but the process implies something. It implies that you and I and anybody can be at different places in the journey, in the process, and we can move at different paces in the process. We can be at different places, and we can move at different paces. So just because somebody's not at the same place you are or not moving at the same pace you are doesn't mean they're not repenting. It's a process, and we can move and be at different places and at different paces. And it's a journey. It's a journey to get there. It requires that fundamental questions get asked and that things be challenged. And that's why I want to just remind you about this point. When we go to help others, you are not the guide on the road to repentance for other people. You are fellow journeymen on the road of repentance with other people. The Holy Spirit is the guide. You're a companion. The good news is when I go to interact with people and I know that they need to, God wants to draw them to repentance, I'm not the one that's going to get them there. But I can create a place where they can meet Jesus or I can help facilitate a conversation about Jesus. But Jesus is the one that will get them there. I'm a fellow journeyman. I'm a fellow companion on the same road of repentance. So, repentance is necessary. Repentance is healing. Repentance is a journey. But the last, last quick thing about repentance, this is just my introduction, so I need to speed up. Repentance is all, I know, all of you. I just saw somebody roll their eyes. <laughs> me too, man, me too. Now listen, ultimately, repentance is a gift. You don't earn it. Listen, Jesus invites Levi to follow him before he repents. He doesn't require that he repents in order to follow him. That's because the invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to a journey of repentance. And it starts by getting in relationship with Jesus. You don't get your stuff right and then come to Jesus. Because ultimately, repentance is a gift. Yes, it is by God's grace that we, we do repent. And yes, there is a decision. But the decision in repentance is more like saying yes to God's yes to you. Or saying no to God's yes to you. Either way, there is a decision in repentance, but it's normally a decision to something God has already begun by his own grace in your life. So it is ultimately a gift. So that is what repentance, I just want to frame that because now that's what this really, this five little verses is about. But now I want to talk about this. How did Jesus create some space for Levi to experience repentance? And that's what the table becomes. The table became a place where Jesus intended to eat and dine with them that he might bring him to repentance. You remember the Pharisees' question? How in the world can you be eating and drinking with these people? And Jesus said, right, I'm not come uh, to call the healthy. They don't need a doctor or the, uh, the righteous. I've called the, the sinner to repentance. Why are you eating with them, Jesus? Because I'm calling them to repentance. Why are you at the table with them? This is part of how I call them to repentance. And repentance is healing. Jesus meeting with them at the table is a place where he intends to start healing them. It's not the only place, there's other places, but it is a place that we can meet with Jesus and he can heal us. So, I just wanna walk through this briefly, but what are some ways, what are some, uh, the, the mindset Jesus has that we might pick up on if we're gonna partner with Jesus to be the kinds of people that help others find healing and repentance? I think that would be a good question, eh? So the first thing is, Jesus is relational, but let me give you what I mean by that. Jesus makes space for repentance around the table by putting people over propriety. Jesus puts people over propriety. Propriety is just a, you know, means um, um, 
aligning yourself with conventionally accepted behavior and morals. I mean, think of the word appropriate. Uh, propriety means always being appropriate, doing the right thing to what a particular culture would deem right. Jesus puts people over being appropriate all the time. Maybe you need to hear that again. Jesus puts people over being appropriate, because you're being really pro- appropriate right now. But just show me. Jesus puts people over propriety. In other words, the Pharisees and the tax collectors, Jesus and the Pharisees, listen to this, they both agreed on something. They both agreed that Levi's behavior was not right. They both agreed that what he was doing was wrong. The Pharisees, you see, used what they knew to be true about his behavior to condemn him and exclude him. Jesus saw his behavior and said, I've come to redeem you. That, listen, hospitality is not the same thing as affirming someone's behavior or morals. You can have people at your table that you fundamentally disagree with because hospitality is not the same thing as agreement. It's creating place for people to repent. It's creating place for people to encounter Jesus. Listen, some, you can't come home until you know there's a home to come home to. So if there are people that you think you can't have at your table, check again. Why? The Pharisees allowed their judgment to take them to a place of condemnation, but Jesus didn't. And I want to get to a fundamental reason why. Jesus is faithful, first of all, to his Father. He's faithful or loyal to God, let's put it that way. But part of being faithful to God, if you can just track with me, means being faithful to God's intentions and what God wills, what God wants. And what God wants is that all of his creation would be fully alive in the way he intended it to be. God's will, Saint, uh, um, uh, uh, it's not saint, but uh, Arrhenius, one of the earliest church fathers, made the comment, right? The glory of God is man fully alive. That what God ultimately wants, God's will, is that his creation would experience the fullness of life as he intended it. So in other words, Jesus, in being faithful to God, can then be faithful and committed to Levi's flourishing and seeing Levi fully alive. And he can be committed to Levi and seeing Levi fully alive without compromising what he knows to be wrong. You see, it's because of his commitment to the Father and to what the Father's will is, which is that his creation would be fully alive, that Jesus can look at Levi and see the sinfulness of his behavior and go, I'm coming to your house, boy. We're going to have dinner because I'm going to heal you. You see, the Pharisees were more committed to their traditions and their doctrines and persevering their way of life in a particular social group's way of life. Jesus is committed to the Father and therefore committed to life and seeing God's creation fully alive. Listen, Christians, I I just want to tell you, it is possible to be committed to seeing people fully alive who you fundamentally disagree with. That's a good thing. This is what I want to challenge you with. It's the fact that people aren't near as committed as they should be to life, that they end up settling for little things like pleasure. They eat the scraps of the ta- from the table of the world and fill their bellies up on, on things like sensuality and, and um, identity and all of these other things when God offers a feast that will deeply satisfy. And that's, people would tell me, uh, you know, 
Friends of mine who disagree or atheists would always bring up to me, you know, what's, what about the problem with pain? How can God be so good if things are so painful? And I would always bring back up to them, what about the problem of pleasure? Why is it even all the pleasures you have doesn't satisfy? Maybe it's because you were meant for another type of satisfaction that you can't find in these earthly pleasures. So my point is, Christians, we can urge the world, people who don't know Jesus, to go after life, to go after being affirm, affirm what, is, what is really and deeply satisfying about life. Do that. Go after that. The problem is, don't let them stop too short with these little pleasures. Encourage them more. Push them towards it, because ultimately we will find there's only one place we are deeply satisfied, and that is in the presence of God. There is joy forevermore. So Jesus... Jesus does not let what he hates or what he's against define what he's going to love. He allows what he loves to define what he's against. And he's against sin because it taints and it ruins and it steals and it disintegrates the life that God intended for his creation. So he's against sin because he's for Levi and wanting to see Levi fully alive. Well, uh, okay. Another thing that we see here about being relational is Jesus, uh, the Pharisees saw tax collectors and they saw outcasts. Jesus saw Levi. Listen, if we're going to have and help create a place, if we're going to come to a table that is a space for people to be healed, we have to see people and not labels, not behaviors, not political parties, not agendas. Not even lifestyles. Look, you can, we can make, we'll get to that in a moment. Pause, AT. Uh, no, let's just do it now. You can make judgments. You can make judgments about people's behavior. Right? right well, this is a long sermon, and I've done it on, on judgment before. You know, the Bible says don't judge, and the next place it says judge. Why have you not judged? Right? Jesus says judge not lest you be judged. You sinners. It's like, well, that was a judgment, Jesus. You know, how do we handle that? Look, here's how you, here's how you actually... It seems that the scriptures are conflicted about judgment when it's not. And I can take you through every single one and show you how it's not. And this is why. We are to judge behaviors. Are they profitable or unprofitable? Are they healthy or unhealthy? Are they holy or unholy? What we are to never do is make a final evaluation of someone's worth or character that leads to condemnation or total exclusion. That is God's to judge. So I can make a decision about something. I can say this behavior is not all right. That's fine, but if you use that judgment to exclude them from a table in which they could be healed, then you've stepped over into God's ground of judgment, not yours. That's the tension we have to walk in, and that's the tension Jesus does. Levi, this is wrong. I'm going to bring you to repentance. Let's go eat. I have a deep friend of mine. We laugh about it now, but um, he, um, uh, well, a practicing homosexual, and I looked at him and said, I will never, we had an argument about this, I said, I will never agree that this is okay, I'll never, listen, it'd be easier for me if the Bible didn't say what it said about it, like, I, I'm with you, that'd have been a lot easier, but it does say what it says, so doing my best to live by what I believe to be true, I'll never agree with your position on it, all right? He's like, all right, all right, now, would you come over and let's eat? <laughs> it doesn't have to end in, like, I want to exclude you. Oh, I can just tell this is fun. I am, there's some, I can hear cages rattling and people trying to decide to pull swords or not pull swords just yet. Just hold them. Um, you just wait. <laughs> Listen, Jesus can be critical of Levi's behavior because he's committed to his good. 
You see, the, one of the reasons why we never trust a, pe- a, a pessimistic uh, critic is because it's not because they criticize. Criticism is welcomed. It's because they don't love what they criticize. See, Jesus may have some things to say about our lives that we don't like, but know that he says it committed to our good. And that's vastly different than somebody who criticizes without being committed to our good. So the table becomes a place where we welcome people for who they are now. We welcome people for as they are now, for who they will become. In the same way that Jesus welcomed Levi as he was, for who he will become. And that is Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He embraces him as he is now, because he knows who he will become. We can invite people to our table as they are now, for who they might become. That's because we're people marked by hope. So how do we do this? Some practical things as we end. This means that we put people, not only over propriety, we put people over our reputation or what others might think of us. We put people in our table and the possibility that somebody might dine in our table and meet Jesus and be healed. We put that over what they might think about the cleanliness of our home. We put that over what they might think about the the tastefulness of our food or what they may think about the style or cost of our home. That we think about people over what they, the other people might think. In other words, we, we focus on loving people, not on impressing people. If we want our home, if we want to have a table that is a create space for Jesus, for people to meet Jesus and be healed, then we have to put people not only over propriety, what we think is right, we have to put uh, people over what uh, reputation, what others might think of us. So maybe some ways to do that. Number one, it's very difficult to make room in your home for others until you've learned to make room in your life for God. You will not have a heart for people until you've made room in your heart for God. So sometimes you just need to slow down and create space for Jesus to meet you. Make room inside your soul for God and watch. He'll make room around your table in due time. The next thing we need to do that will help us is we need to look at seeing seeing people as individuals, again, not as behaviors or labels. The third thing is let go of perfection. We seek to love and not to impress. We seek to be genuinely interested in the other. We're not trying to be interesting to the other. Look, I can tell you over my short little life of trying to help people, something happens when you pause and say, I am here to first seek to understand you before I'm here to try to get you to understand me, or before I'm here to try to get you to agree with me. I just want to understand you. Tell me your story. What do you like? Where's God in your life? Has God ever been in your life? You know, I, I have, I've asked people who, I don't even know, what's the, what's, the most, uh, what's the deepest spiritual experience you've ever had? And just kind of watch them freak out, try to answer it for a moment. It's a weird question, but you'll be surprised what they say. Everybody tracking with me? All right, well, okay, we need to move on, but you get it. Jesus, here's the deal. Jesus was more convinced about God's power to heal Levi than he was of Levi's sinfulness to taint him. Oh, this is going to be fun. Jesus was more confident in God's power to heal and convert Levi than he was afraid that somehow Levi's sinfulness was going to jump off on him. Now look, if you're a struggling alcoholic, you don't invite everybody over and give them beers. Like, work through that a bit. 
But my point is ultimately, we are more afraid of sin than we are confident of God's healing power. We're more afraid, we're more living like Pharisees trying to avoid the sinful world than we are seeing the sinful world as something God's come to heal. Which one are we more confident in? God's power to convert Levi's or somehow Levi's sin rubbing off on us. Jesus was more confident in what God was going to do. And that's the difference between the Pharisee's perspective and Jesus's. The Pharisee had as their mission to keep the law perfectly, to stay righteous, therefore avoid what was unrighteous, what meant we need to exclude Levi and make him an outcast, push him out. Jesus's mission was to come redeem and to seek and save that which was lost. And that's still his mission, and we as his people are to be a part of it. So in the end, when we make space around our home and table, we invite people, I'm trying to help you think through some of these things. Ultimately, you need to know this. It is God's presence that changes and heals people and not yours. So take a deep breath. This is not on you. All you're doing is creating space in your home or around a table. All you're doing is laying some chairs out, eating some food, asking some questions, and watch what God does. He'll do the heavy lifting. We just make space for God to do it. Again, the Pharisees, why are you eating and drinking? And Jesus, I come to heal them. You think you'd do more than eat and drink with them then? But no, there's something about eating and drinking. Jesus' vulnerability with them makes possible their redemption. So, by sharing himself and making room within his soul for them, he made space for them to be healed. Now, here's the deal. The Pharisees and Levi both had the opportunity at the table to be healed by Jesus. We don't know what exactly happened to the Pharisee, but we know he didn't follow Jesus, but we know what happened to Levi. We make space. God will work out the details. So the table creates that space for God's presence to heal us, and that is the way it's always been. It's only when we're really vulnerable can we experience genuine love, the kind of love that really heals us. And I just want to ask you a fundamental question as I land the plane. God has connected you with people in your life right now who he intends to heal through you or through relationship with you. There are people that God has brought into your life and connected you with right now that he intends to work through you to heal. And all that means is that you might make space in your life for another. And you attune to them and you attune to God and all we're doing is helping them attend to the presence of God and watch what happens. Part of that means you need to know a fundamental truth, and that is God is already at work in the other person's life. He's already at work. It's not like because you show up, he's there. He's not like, whoo, so glad you got here, AT. I was really wanting to do something, and I couldn't. I needed you here. <laughs> he is already at work in people's lives around you all the time. He's just looking for people to make some space. That means we learn to practice spiritual hospitality, not just making room within our home, making room within our souls for other people. It means we learn to practice things like genuine dialogue, how to have a conversation where I'm deeply interested in your thoughts and opinions. I'm not just listening for how I'm gonna disagree with you. Or I'm not just listening for how I, what I'm gonna say next. I'll, I'll, listen, honestly, to make space for people is really learning how to not do things more than it is learning how to do things. It's learning how to not interrupt. It's learning how to not be concerned about the food or is it hot enough. It's learning to not be concerned about the temperature in the room. It's learning to listen to what they say and not plan on what you're going to say next. It's, it's learning to be present with the other and genuinely asking some questions that might help them think about their life in light of God and then let the Holy Spirit do the work. 
That's our role. To be a, yeah, clap that. To be a, the way I like to say it is we are to be a non-anxious, non-judgmental presence that helps the other learn how to attend to the presence of God in their life. Non-anxious and non-judgmental. That doesn't mean we don't make judgment. It means it's not our job to make a final evaluation of their worth. Right? And we allow that to happen. All right, well, there's a great book you may, might be interested in reading sometime. It's called The Unlikely Convert, written by uh, R- Rosia Butterfield. She was a uh, lesbian um, Ivy League liberal professor of the arts who, I mean, for years managed all of uh, pride events, all kinds of things, just over and over. Was, yeah, very aggressive in that sense, very politically involved, uh, activist. She writes uh, about her conversion to Christianity. Uh, today, she had married with several children and is a Presbyterian pastor. But in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, she wasn't. And she began to go to a home of a Presbyterian, older minister, retired minister and his wife who lived the house down. And they would just have coffee or tea with her. He was British. They would have tea with her. And this is one of her stories. It's over a year, a year and a half of time about her unlikely convert, how she became, how she converted, how she changed the way she thought. This is what she says. What's interesting to me is over the year and a half that I met with him, he never brought up my sexuality unless I did. That he simply loved me. Him and his wife would say, here's a space for you to come anytime you need to get away from the hectic world of college campus. She only had a single room apartment. They said, if you ever have friends that you need a place to stay, you can use one of our rooms. They made room within their souls for her. They opened their lives to her. And God restored her. That's her story. And you can read all about it. Here's my point. (laughs) Here's my point. If we are more concerned about being inconvenienced than we are about people who are lost, we don't near know the heart of Jesus like we think we do. Maybe the inconvenience the other represents is simply an adventure you've been missing out on. Maybe the inconvenience is just an adventure wrongly considered of partnering with God to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, last point to conclude is this. We all have been Levi's and Pharisees at some point in our life. And I bet right now you probably have parts of you like Levi who are the outcast, who feel shame, who you think to yourself, if others only knew about this, they wouldn't love me. Well, I have good news for you. Jesus calls you to follow him, to come to the table and dine, and let him heal you. Some of you may have parts like the Pharisee, who's criticizing the other. You live in almost this, almost like you got, my dad used to say, got winged on a pickle. <laughs> You're just bitter all the time. You're just angry. You just don't understand. You... You, you want to fix the whole world. You wish everybody would just be gone from you or push away from your life everything that's wrong or evil or, or whatever. Maybe the table is both the place for Levi and the place for the Pharisee because it's the place where Jesus is. Bring that part as well. Have a conversation with Jesus about those parts of you. 
Because listen, you cannot outperform inward shame. There is not enough accolades or achievements. It has to be loved out. And it has to be loved out by being completely vulnerable about it and finding the other person is there loving you. That's the only thing that begins to silence the voice of shame. And Jesus bids you come to the table and let him speak life and love over the most shameful parts of your soul. And let him speak healing and confidence to some of the most judgmental parts of your soul that you might be healed at the table. Well, your GP2RL for the week is this. Your God's presence to real life is this. Ask Jesus to give you his perspective for the lost, the hurting, and the broken. It's a dangerous prayer, but would you pray, Lord, would you come help me see the lost and hurting and broken around me the way that you see them? Which might just be like a doctor seeking the sick in order to heal them. Would you stand with me? We're going to begin to, we're going to respond in worship. And this is what I'd like you to consider for a moment. Um, as we worship, there's a couple things. We, we want to worship and respond to the Lord. But maybe you're here and there's a, there's a sense of repentance you have in your heart. Maybe you can go, there's communion in the middle. You can go grab communion and take communion. And, and just remind yourself it's because of his shed blood that his broken body that we are forgiven. Maybe you're here, this is a great time during worship to practice your, your practice tithe and offerings, that reminding that God has provided for me and he will continue to provide for me and the giving stations are available, things like that. It is an act of worship. Maybe you're here and there's somebody you know that God is putting on your heart that he has connected you with intentionally. Would you take time? Ooh, I can't take time? I came out like I was from Louisiana. All right, come back, AT. Would you take a moment as we worship to just intercede for them? just say, Lord, I ask you to save their souls. I ask you to draw them to you, to give them a heart to know you, that you would open their eyes, they would see your beauty as we worship together. Lord, we turn now our hearts to you to worship. I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would move, you would have your way. We thank you for this in advance in Jesus' name. Amen.